Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And coming up on today's show, we are covering a topic which is one of those subjects which lots of doctors, myself included, really struggle managing, and that is a pregnant patient. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Anita Banerjee, a national leader in obstetric medicine to help us build confidence in managing patients presenting with medical problems in pregnancy. Anita was one of the best guests I've had on the podcast so far. Such was the fluency of her speaking about this subject, which she is clearly so passionate about. Anita was so generous with her time that we ended up speaking for nearly two hours on the topic. And so once again, I've split it into a two-parter. This first part covers two huge topics, which includes gestational diabetes and venous thromboembolism in pregnancy. Finally, I'm paying tribute to more wonderful listeners who have supported the show on our Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find a link to in the show notes. A big, big thank you to M and Dr. Diana Kavanagh for their kind donations. Diana is a respiratory consultant from Sandwell and West Birmingham Hospitals NHS Trust. And off the back of her kind generosity, Diana has kindly agreed to come on the podcast to talk about a respiratory topic in paces. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that in the weeks to come. But enough of that for now. Let's get into this episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. My name is Dr. Sam Williams, and this is the podcast that started off as my adorable brainchild, and at this point, it's grown into a sulking teenager that won't tidy its room. This episode, we're covering a topic which many might consider to be somewhat of a curveball when it comes to the MRCP paces. Instead of focusing on one topic, we're going to be covering several different topics that all come under the umbrella of a pregnant patient in paces. We could not have anyone better to join us for this episode than Dr. Anita Banerjee. Anita is a consultant at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, specialising in diabetes and endocrinology, general medicine. And in addition to that, she is one of the national leaders in the emerging specialty of obstetric medicine. And she is also an honorary senior lecturer in obstetric medicine at King's College London. 
I think it's fair to say she's the perfect person for us to discuss this fascinating subspecialty. So, Anita, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sam. Really pleased to be here today. And we are pleased to have you. And just before we start, as I said, obstetric medicine is somewhat of an emerging specialty. So how did you or how does a medical trainee coming through the system at the moment go about subspecialising within obstetric medicine? So I know that when I was at medical school, I'm I'm a medic. I love medicine. I really was interested in that pregnant woman, but was not really somebody that was interested in surgery. And when I first saw one of my pregnant women as a junior doctor, I really understood that people didn't know how to manage um, the expectations of the woman, did not really be able to manage the medication and the drugs they can use. And I met my mentor, Professor Kathy Nelson Piercy, about 20 years now, and felt, oh my goodness, obstetric medicine, looking after pregnant women is a really interesting thing. Let's go about and do it. As you know, there is no CCT in obstetric medicine. However, in the past 20 years, it's really merged into this kind of um, idea of, look, who is going to look after the pregnant woman? Because as we know, the obstetric landscape has changed. More pregnant women are older. They've got comorbidities. They've got obesity. And nobody can know everything now. And hence, situations like this and the podcast that you're actually providing allows us to have that information. So how do you now subspecialize or um, credential in obstetric medicine? I'm really pleased that at St. Thomas's we have the first IMT3 obstetric medicine speciality where you get a chance to do obstetric medicine for three months. And I hope as we go forward in your career and and as things change for us in the NHS and training for doctors change, that there's more opportunity to have either an out of program opportunity for a year of obstetric medicine and probably post CCT as well. Yeah, fantastic. And you've already mentioned a couple of things there, but why is it that looking after pregnant patients is such an important skill set to have as a medical trainee and and an, and a prospective medical registrar? And and going on from there, why is it important to include this sort of patient in paces? Yeah, really, really good point. Because let's be honest, with complexity, we're really good now at looking after the complex, aged um, population, you know, has heart failure, has renal disorders. But you've got to remember, pregnant women and a woman of childbearing age is anything from 16 to 49 in this country, and sometimes even older. So they can have pre-existing medical conditions. We know that at the moment, every two minutes, a woman of childbearing age who's got pregnant or has been recently pregnant dies worldwide. Okay, so that number is huge. So that's about 810 women a day. 99% of them happen in low income and middle income countries. However, the 1% that happen in, in you know, high income countries, including the UK, why do they happen and what does it mean? And what we do know in the past 20 years that more than 75% of the deaths that happen in in the UK are due to pre-existing medical conditions or de novo medical conditions during pregnancy. So really, the medical registrar is one of the most important people because if you've got somebody who presents who's pregnant, you've got that clinical inertia, mother, baby, what tests do I do, what drugs do I give? But more important, how do you unpick whether you've got something that is actually life-threatening in front of you and manage this. So I think it's really needed in paces and it really is needed in training across every speciality. 
And towards the end of the show, Anita will be the next contestant on Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where our bosses face questions on their very own specialist topic, which can't be related to medicine. So, Anita, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? Yeah, good question. So I thought about this. It has to be Harry Potter. You know, I, I remember reading the Harry Potter book more than 20 years ago, and I love every single book, every single movie. But I'll be honest with you, I've got COVID brain now, Sam, so I'm not sure how I'm going to do with your quiz, but um, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, well, as you know, there's no pressure when it comes to the quiz. So let's hope Anita can work her magic and conjure up a winning score later in the show. But without further ado, let's discuss how you might approach a pregnant patient in Paces. So this episode is going to take a slightly different structure than maybe what our regular listeners are used to. Anita, there are a few distinct scenarios involving a pregnant patient, which I felt it would be important for us to talk about. And those are, firstly, gestational diabetes. Second, VTE, so venous thromboembolism in pregnancy. Hypertension in pregnancy. And then after that, we've got a few sort of smaller topics, which may involve a pregnant patient. Again, these things are probably going to be quite the curveballs if they come up in paces so we're just going to try and prepare listeners as best we can for if something like this comes up the first thing we usually discuss on the show is which station the listeners are most likely to see these types of cases and then how they might be presented in the vignette so anita with these topics of obstetric medicine in mind how might the vignette read for our paces candidates with these types of cases yeah, really, really good question, Sam. So, you know, I think if you saw a bump in paces, we're all going to panic and get a clinical inertia. But I think what you've got to understand is that we're not going to bring you somebody who's really, really sick. What we really are doing in paces is really understanding, do you have some understanding of um, what a pregnant woman can present with? And how do you communicate? So I really see this in communication and in station five. I think the things that you can really see are they've got a new presentation of something and that could be pregnancy related, such as gestational diabetes, or it could be you've got a new presentation of inflammatory bowel disease in pregnancy and how would you counsel them? Could also be, if you think about it, and, and for you as, as a physician, you know, women present with symptoms, patients present with symptoms. So when a pregnant woman presents with a symptom, how do you unpick what is obstetric related and what is non-obstetric related? and dissect this. So I believe that if you're going to get something in paces, first thing is don't panic. Secondly, listen to the question. And I hope by the end of this podcast and the information resources that we provide you, you'll have a much better understanding of how to actually approach it, give good sound advice and get the best outcome for your patient. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I can't wait to get into it. So Without further ado, I think let's start off with our first topic, which, as I mentioned at the start, it's gestational diabetes. And during my research for the for the episode, one thing I found, which maybe I didn't realize, is this is the most common medical complication of pregnancy and affects up to three percent of pregnancies. So, again, with that with that in mind, how might this sort of station be presented in a in a paces style scenario? Yeah, really, really good question. So gestational diabetes, you diagnose it during pregnancy. And 
it may present with actually um, a woman has presented with gestational diabetes. And could you give her advice regarding what this means? So this could be, you know, what is how do you screen somebody for gestational diabetes? What are the risks to her and her baby? And then it could be also what are the long term risks associated with this? Remember, diabetes, we see that a lot in non-pregnant patients. Okay, And as you said, gestational diabetes is a growing epidemic, as is obesity. So as women get older, women get more um, bigger, really. You've got more of it. So the prevalence of 2 to 3%, I would say in pockets of the UK, including London, you know, our, our rates are as high as 10 to 15%, actually, which is quite scary, isn't it? So what might you see flagged up? You might see something about, well, actually, um, someone's been diagnosed with gestational diabetes or more importantly, has presented and in their urine, there's sugar. So if, if they've got glycosuria, what does that mean? Should you be screening some for gestational diabetes? As we all know, we've got nice guidelines for diabetes and pregnancy, which were updated in 2015 and again updated very recently in the past year. For gestational diabetes, we normally screen them either between 24 and 28 weeks, and that is with a fasting blood glucose. And then we give them um, a 75 grams of glucose and check their blood glucose at two hours. So if you will be diagnosed with, with gestational diabetes, if you've got a fasting of greater than 5.6 and your two hour is 7.8. However, you, as you know, a screening test is as good as and even if that is negative, this woman may present again, even in A&E, in the acute medicine unit with glycosuria. And you, as a junior doctor, may be having to then counsel them. What does this mean to them? How would you screen them? And so, again, glycosuria, there's a renal threshold for pregnancy. As you know, the glomerular filtration rate increases in pregnancy. But actually, no woman should have more than one plus, And you shouldn't have it frequently. So the NICE guidelines mm -hmm. have changed. But if you've got persistent glycosuria, more than two occasions or two separate occasions, you should be thinking about um, diabetes and pregnancy and gestational diabetes. More worryingly, you know, particularly with COVID, have you got pre-existing type 2 diabetes or type 1 and it just hasn't been diagnosed since you're pregnant? So I would say the medical registrar has a lot to give at that moment. So now that I've given you that information, let me think about what you need to worry about and how you would actually discuss this and communicate with the woman. So you would say to her, look, you may have gestational diabetes. I've confirmed it with this test. This means there are risks to you as the mum and there's risks to you as your baby. So let's be honest, when you're pregnant, all you do is worry about your, your baby. So if you've got too much sugar going across to the baby, you've got a higher risk of having fetal macrosomia. So that means that the abdominal circumference is much bigger. And as you get to term, you're going to have problems actually delivering this baby and have that horrendous aspect of shoulder dystocia. So let's be honest, most of us are medics. We're, we are not obstetricians. The shoulder dystocia is the emergency in obstetrics that you don't want to be involved in. So this is why it's important to diagnose them. If you've got gestational diabetes or you've got diabetes in pregnancy, you have a much higher risk, actually, unfortunately, of miscarriage in the first trimester and the third trimester, actually intrauterine death and stillbirth. So you've got to think about these things and think about when should you be delivering these women so because of NICE guidelines and all the research that's been done in diabetes and pregnancy in the UK, if you've got gestational diabetes, you are diagnosed with it. We are trying to get your blood sugars down and we've got strict guidelines of what it should be. 
So unfortunately, we get you monitoring your blood glucose four times a day, fasting and one hour after each meal. We give you advice about lifestyle modifications and ensure that your blood glucose remain at that. If you, without the lifestyle modifications, don't have gestational diabetes, that's lovely. But if you then have blood glucose levels that are high, you've got to worry. And you've got to start with A, what your diet is and exercise. Okay, So we start asking them about reducing the amount of um, carbohydrates that you have and the portion size. And we aim for about 50 grams of carbohydrate. We also think about exercise and moving after meals. That's not enough. You've got to have an understanding. And this is why I think the physician role is really, really important. You've got to understand what drugs are safe in pregnancy. And metformin is really, really safe. We've done studies, you know, past 10 to 15 years on this. And more importantly, um, it's been used worldwide for many years. So we know metformin is safe in pregnancy. If metformin alone does not get this right, then it's insulin. And the insulins that we use are short-acting, Novarapid, which you all know about. And we use the Humulin I, which is um, one of the older insulins for long-acting. And really, we use it for gestational diabetes because it's cheap. Let's be really honest, it's cheap when it comes to health economics. Um, most of you would know Levomir, Desimir, Glargine, and those we normally keep for our type 2s or our type 1s. So having gestational diabetes brings guilt. It brings guilt to the mum. So some people are really, really good. We'll reduce their food content will exercise and get, and get there but let's be honest the majority of us find it really really hard and hence getting that blood glucose level right first with medication is really really important but also then it's the surveillance and this is where I think the, the physician has a role you know when, when the mother is not sure when she has some sort of coexisting infection such as urinary tract infection you've got to treat this and get the sugar levels right so when you are presented with someone with gestational diabetes, you know, be empathetic, think about the screening test, think about how it could affect the mother or the baby. Um, I've talked about the baby. With the mom, it, it does increase her risk of preeclampsia. It does increase her risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension. So we've got to monitor this. And more worryingly, if you get gestational diabetes, it's a really marker of, of your health and your increased risk of type 2 diabetes later in life. So we've got to be counselling these women that, look, this was actually um, a, a moment in your life. The physiological stress of pregnancy has highlighted that you've got a much higher risk of type 2 diabetes and what you can do about it. And really, I'm, I'm afraid it goes back down to lifestyle modifications, exercise, healthy living and, and you know, eating in moderation. I'm not saying starve yourself and get down to size zero because that's it's impossible. But it really is about motivating these women at the right time. So I hope that gives you your golden nuggets for screening somebody for gestational diabetes and giving advice, which is really, really important. Wow. What, an, uh, what a you know, comprehensive overview we've had there in the last few minutes. Absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating. What, a couple of questions I had is, is metformin the, the first line therapy? And, if, um, and how long would you continue them on metformin before you then make the decision to say, OK, this isn't working, you're going to need insulin? Yeah, Sam, really good question. So what I love about um, obstetric medicine and what I do is that you've only got 40 weeks, okay? You look after somebody <laughs> for those 40 weeks. So if you think about gestational diabetes, they're diagnosed between 24 and 28. Obviously, sometimes we diagnose them early as well. But it's really the third trimester that the baby starts growing um, much, much more. So actually, you haven't got that long. It's not that you've got days, but really, we would say give yourself one to two weeks. 
So what we really do is we diagnose somebody with gestational diabetes. We give them lifestyle modifications and surveillance for up to two weeks. If we see that, you know what, every single glucose level is above the range that we've suggested, we then start adding metformin. And then again, we give it another week or two and we add in the insulin. So if you think about somebody's diagnosed at 28 weeks, you know, by the time we've got diet and lifestyle, that gets you to 30. And then really that 30, 30 to 36 weeks, you've got to be working hard because it's at 36 weeks that the decision about delivery is normally made. Um, it's really, really good. And particularly with the um, with COVID and virtual and teleconference that I hope and I hope all of you, wherever you work, go back to your maternity services and your diabetes centers and use things like GDM Health. So this is an app which can be virtual because the truth is, you know, let's be honest, as a non-pregnant doctor, how often do you look at blood glucose levels in the community? You know, it's quite hard. And if you can do something um, virtually, it's much, much easier. So, you know, we've got these new apps, we've got motivation. We can see when women are not actually um, monitoring. And, you know, because non-adherence, non-compliance is a big factor, I would say, in, in all our chronic diseases. And, and don't think it gets any better in diabetes and pregnancy. Um, so engagement and that motivational discussions are really important. Yeah, fantastic. And one of the things that I thought we should talk about as well is not just women who develop gestational diabetes, but women who maybe already have diabetes themselves, whether that's type one or type two, and are planning to become pregnant. So are there any considerations which need to be taken into account for these women who already have established diabetes and are considering pregnancy? You, you've asked a fantastic question. And, you know, pre-existing conditions and getting optimal health prior to deliver, um, conception is really, really important. You will reduce your complications during pregnancy. And we know that for diabetics, for pre-existing diabetics, type one and type two, the landscape's changed in the UK. You know, when I was a registrar, the majority were type ones. Now we've got 50% type one and 50% type two. As you know, type one diabetic women um, are mostly seen um, in you know, prior secondary care and in, in the hospital, while the type two diabetic women are mostly managed by your general practitioners. So this is where you, you as a clinician, every time you meet a woman with um, a pre-existing condition like diabetes, you've got an opportunity to remind them to optimize your health. And we know that if you can improve your glycemic control before you, can, before you conceive, at conception in those first 12 weeks, you reduce your risk of um, teratogenicity um, which, which can be up to 10% if your HbA1c is really, really high. So we really aim to get that HbA1c around 48 millimoles um, approximately, which in, which in old money is about 6.5%. Okay? Um, and really, don't make them feel guilty if they've conceived with a higher HbA1c. What you've got to do is get it down. So my, my challenge to you, Sam, and, and to all the listeners is actually – get people engaged in their health. You know, 40% of pregnancies are unplanned in this country. And I think in the inner cities, it's probably even higher than that. And we as health professionals have this opportunity to, to actually say to them, you know what, optimize your health. Did you know that for diabetics, we actually have preconception counseling clinics across the country. Every hospital should have a preconception counsel clinic. What we do know 
for my National Diabetes and Pregnancy work. And that was recently presented a couple of weeks ago, that type 1 pregnant women will engage with pre-pregnancy counselling. It's type 2 that we really need to get to. Even in the place where I work at Tommy's, you know, our linkage with pre-pregnancy type 2 diabetics is not as good as it should be. And we really need to work towards this. So if they've been seen by the general practitioner, they should be referring them for pre-pregnancy counselling. Um, you, you should know that um, metformin is safe to conceive on. We don't really want to con- um, conceive on citagliptin, zapofiglozin. We don't want to um, really conceive on the GLP-1 analogues. So having these conversations are really, really necessary. One of the things I wanted to ask is, do the women who present with gestational diabetes, do they present with the typical symptoms that you would associate with diabetes normally? So um, polydipsia, polyuria and weight loss, because if you're growing something inside you as well, you might not necessarily notice that weight loss. And there's plenty of other reasons in pregnancy that women might urinate more. So the, the diagnosis based on symptoms alone must be quite difficult. Yeah, it's a really good question, Sam. So actually, gestational diabetes, if we think about it, is a, is a state in the second half of pregnancy. We all are insulin resistant when you're pregnant. Otherwise, a baby would never have any sugar. So you don't actually present with gestational diabetes with polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss. What it is is a screening test. So we want to pick it up and we want to do something about it for the baby. It's not necessary for the mum. When you have polyuria, polydipsia, weight loss, and, if you, and your sugar's high, you're more worried that have you got a new presentation of a type 2, a new presentation of a type 1. So the screening that we use in this country, we don't screen every single pregnant woman for gestational diabetes. What we do is we screen them if they've got a first degree relative who's got diabetes. If you're from um, an ethnic background, you get screened. If you're morbidly obese or you've got a BMI of greater than 30, if you've had a previous four kilo baby. So we've got kind of criteria for managing them. So I think if you, in our in your acute take, found somebody who had polyuria, polydipsia, you would look for pre-existing diabetes. Or remember, a pheochromocytoma, okay? So pheos will drive um, hyperglycemia. So, you know, you guys, I think, if you keep your differentials wide enough, will pick out the weird and wonderful. This was just more, yeah, more out of my interest than maybe something that could come up in paces is, so if you're establishing someone with gestational diabetes on insulin, what sort of regimes would you normally start them on? Yeah, um, Sam, they're really good questions. So let let me kind of put it into context. If you've got pre-existing diabetes type one, you're on a basal bolus or you're on, you're on an insulin pump. Okay. If you've got type two or you've got gestational diabetes, you are normally either diet controlled, you use metformin and then use insulin. And what are we trying to do? If you think about what we're trying to do with the, with the blood sugars, what we're trying to do is reduce it all the time. So we're quite tight about what we want it. We want it to be between 3.5 and 7.8 all the time. Okay, that's quite hard, actually. So for the gestational diabetics specifically, we're going to start insulin. We start looking at their fasting. And if they're high, what you would think about as actually what time of day are you eating? Are you eating late at night or early? And particularly in winter months like now, can you eat a little bit earlier? Are you snacking before you go to bed? Maybe starting some metformin, even if their blood sugars are normal after they've had that, that evening meal, start them on a bit of metformin and see whether we can get the fasting down. If you can't get the fasting down, it's a really, really good idea and a recognition that that baby is seeing 
high sugars throughout the night. Okay, so that's the longest hours, isn't it? It's, it could be anything between six hours and 12 hours. So we, st we normally start insulin for the evening and we can normally give it about 9 p.m. depending on when the mother sleeps and then get them to measure their fasting in the morning. And let's be honest, what we don't want to do is do no harm. Now that's what we, that's what doctors do. We don't want to do any harm. So you don't want to start with high sugars and high insulin because you're going to hypo. So, you know, we, we normally start either two units, four units or six units. And Sam, you're going to tell me, I need to give me a number. Okay. So if they're mildly high and, you, and you've got somebody who's never started insulin before, and, you know, let's be honest, if you suddenly have to start it, you're, you're quite scared. We normally start them in a very small amount. So it's two units or four units. What we tend to do is crank it up every two days and take it up by two units or four units. So in the community, you know, we'd say two to four units. If you see them in hospital, I can I will sometimes double it. So if you're on four units of insulin and your blood sugars in the fasting are all six, 6.5, when we're wanting it to be less than 5.3, you know, I'd say, okay, let's start four units today. Let's give it two days. Let's try six units. Let's try eight units. So I hope that gives you some idea. Nova Rapid works a lot quicker. So again, you've got to be a little bit careful that you don't want to have hypos. So I would start cautiously at two to four units and then double that or increase it by unit incrementally, depending on what they eat. So I hope that gives you an idea. We don't look at a woman, no matter what their BMI is, and think you will need X amount of insulin. We kind of start with it and don't worry whether you've gone up by 10, 20 or 40%. I've managed women who've only needed 15 units of total insulin extra, and some women who've needed more than 350 units of insulin. But what you need to tell them is it's not about the number and the amount of insulin. It's have we got the blood sugars right? Because we know it's the glucose that drives the, the stuff that makes things worse for outcomes for pregnant women. The last question I really wanted to um, ask you regarding gestational diabetes, and probably a question which you might have been asked, you know, hundreds of times before is, how often do we expect this to resolve in our pregnant patients once they've delivered and how often will it persist and they'll need insulin or other treatment for their diabetes further down the line? Yeah, excellent question. So if it's a gestational diabetic, as soon as that placenta is removed, the blood sugars drop. And actually we tell our women with gestational diabetes, as soon as you've had the baby, you don't need to measure your blood sugars anymore. What you do need to do at about three months postpartum is have an HbA1c and be screened for type 2 diabetes, and then be screened annually for type 2 diabetes because you have a 60 to 70% chance of having type 2 diabetes. However, let's be honest, Sam, we, there are always women who've got pre-existing diabetes um, that you're a little bit more worried about. And sometimes when you've done the oral glucose tolerance test, and I, I saw one yesterday in clinic, you know, someone who had a fasting of 7.2 and a two-hour of, of um, 11.6. So this woman, I, I said to her, actually, you know what? I'm not convinced this is gestational diabetes. I'm a little worried that it could actually be type 2 diabetes. But as soon as the placenta is removed, they may not need vast amounts of insulin. They may just need monitoring of blood glucose levels and, stop, and diet modifications and may need some metformin. So I would say the majority of the time, it's gestational diabetics. You, you'd stop all the medication when they have the baby. But every so often, if you really look at the numbers and look at the values, um, we do see women that have, have got pre-existing diabetes.
So the next thing I really wanted to talk about was VTE in pregnancy, venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism in pregnancy. So most doctors will know that pregnancy conveys an increased risk of VTE. And from the research I've done, it's about four to five times greater than in non-pregnant females of the same age. And the purpurium is the time of highest risk and persists for up to about six weeks after the birth. So this sort of thing could come up in paces and you would be expected to know about the um, increased risk of thromboembolism in pregnancy. And this doesn't just count for DVTs and PEs, but also other sources of thrombosis, such as uh, a venous sinus thrombosis. So Anita, would you mind just running through for us what, I mean, the symptoms of a VTE are going to be much the same as a, as a non-pregnant patient, aren't they? Absolutely. So, so let, let's put it into context, okay? So I, I kind of briefly talked to you about maternal deaths and how we, um, a lot of them are, you know, due to medical problems in pregnancy. But a maternal death by WHO criteria and the EMBRACE criteria is either a direct death or an indirect death. So direct deaths are obstetric-related, okay, or pregnancy-related, and indirect deaths are the medical problems in pregnancy. So as an obstetric physician, you know, I am interested in the medical problems in pregnancy and the in the indirect deaths. And venous thromboembolism, if you died from it or you had a condition, it's, it's a direct death. So that means that it's obstetric-related. So obstetricians are really good at diagnosing and considering PEs, DVTs. Um, the sinus venous thrombosis and, and those aspects, we, we need to support them, but they do think about it. But where what we've come to um, with defensive medicine and just the processing is that everybody has to be considered for a PE. If you can't, if you present with shortness of breath, you've got to have other differentials. So I'm saying to you, and I, and you, I hope you agree with me, that um, we do far more CTPAs in non-pregnancy Okay, everybody has a CTP and that's how we diagnose pneumonia. And I would say that the same kind of happens now with pregnancy. So th there's three things I want to explain. First of all, you're absolutely right. Whatever they present with non-pregnancy symptoms, you will present with pregnancy. But I want you guys to take a deeper his history and examination mm -hmm. because is it as simple as is actually short of breath because she's got anemia or is there a heart failure or something else? Okay, the pleuritic chest pain, is it really pleuritic or is it reflux? Okay, take the history. If you feel that the history would fit with a non-pregnant PE, I would go ahead and do your tests. Okay, as we all know, D-dimers are not validated in pregnancy. We know that in the second half of pregnancy, it goes up by two to three fold. The world of COVID has shown us D-dimers that in my lifetime I've never seen. But for a pregnant woman, it can be just two to three fold. So if it was ever any higher, you know, you mustn't just think it's pregnancy related. But I would I would challenge you all guys to actually don't use a D-dimer. Use yourself. You think that you need to exclude a PE, exclude a PE. So how would you do that? So I need to reassure you, chest x-rays are safe in pregnancy. Okay? Completely safe. And you can do as many as you want, up to 2,000. No one's going to have 2,000 chest x-rays in 40 weeks. The next question you can ask me is, you know, how would you actually... Um, investigate and confirm it. And there's two ways, isn't there? There's a, a VQ and a perfusion scan, or there's a CTPA. Nine to five, Monday to Friday, most hospitals have access to a perfusion scan, but it's out of hours that you need to worry about. And as you said, Sam, 
a pregnant woman can present with a PE in the first, second and third trimester and postpartum. And um, it's actually up to 12 weeks, even though we say it's six weeks, it can present a lot later. So you've got to understand that. If you think somebody has a PE or a DVT, I would say to you, first of all, be reassured that you need to first treat it. Okay, If you've thought about it, you've actually got to start your treatment dose fragment. We, if you look in the BNF or you, if you look anywhere, it will tell you that it's a BD. It's weight related mm-hmm. and you split it up and you give it twice a day. And I would initially mm-hmm. start treating them. And then when you ask them, what would you, what would you do next, whether it's a CTPA or VQ scan, I think, A, it depends on what, what you, you have access to. B, if the chest X-ray is normal or abnormal. And I need to tell everybody and remind us all that actually for me, um, the benefits outweigh the risks of the radiation for both of them. So for a ventilation perfusion scan, and it's a pre- pre- it is the perfusion scan that we do for diagnosing the peas in pregnancy, that actually the amount of radiation to the, to the mom is very little. Okay? So the breasts don't get a lot, so there's not a lot of radiation. The increased risk is t- tiny, but an increased risk of um, actually cancer for babies okay, and children long term. But the risk is so, so small that it's almost negligible. When you come to a CTPA, the beauty about a CTPA, and we all know this as, as medics, is that it can give you other diagnoses. It gives you your pneumonia, your atelectasis, and all the other weird and wonderful. And a CTPA is safe in pregnancy, okay, completely safe. And more importantly, um, the radiation at this time for the mother is higher. So, you know, you want to remember, you don't want to do three CTPAs in pregnancy. If you're going to do it, you only want to do it once. You want to remember and take that history. Is this the woman that actually has a history of breast cancer that's early? Are we actually increasing it, um, her risk of getting breast cancer? However, even with all that in context, if you wanted to exclude a PE, I would do a CTPA. So I think I've kind of muddled you, Sam. I've told you risks associated with both of them. But let, it make, let me make it plain and simple. If you think you needed to exclude it, get do a perfusion scan. That would be the best, nine to five, Monday to Friday. But let's be honest, if she's in a third trimester, about, about to have this baby, and you have diagnosed her with a PE at, on Saturday morning, okay, you don't want to leave her on treatment dose if you don't need to. You need to have the test. So I would do the CTPA and as my second line. Does that make sense? And I hope I haven't muddled you too much. No, it makes perfect sense uh, from where I'm coming from. And hopefully it, it does for the listeners at home as well. Um, one thing I just wanted to um, discuss as well, which I think is important is, like you said, we need to think very carefully about the differential diagnoses when we're taking our history. So, Sometimes this can vary in the pregnant patient as opposed to the non-pregnant patient. But what are the sort of differential diagnoses of breathlessness in pregnancy specifically, as well as the additional thoughts that we should have from a non-pregnant perspective? Yeah, really good question. So I would say that if you've got somebody pregnant, the first thing you want to do is understand what we mean by breathlessness. Okay, Is she panting? Is it when she's moving? Is it on exertion? So you've got to look at your red flags. And you've also got to think of the symptoms. And I will refer you now to the Acute Care Toolkit from the RCP, looking at acute medical problems in pregnancy, um, which gives you um, differentials and management processes. So 
common things are common. If you're breathless in pregnancy, it could be because you're anemic. It could be because of asthma. Okay, so we're not very good at managing asthma outside of pregnancy. And in, during pregnancy, you know, because you've got that reflux and, and that, that um, increased risk of the uterus coming up, you could become more short of breath. And it's because you've actually got heartburn and then asthma. So anemia, asthma, and then the common things for other breathlessness, and you've got to think about those, is um, pneumonia. You've got to think about cardiomyopathy and heart problems. So, you know, we are calling it breathlessness, but is it breathlessness walking on exertion and excluding the dangerous ones and understanding that? I hope that gives you an idea. Mm. And and then in terms of, I mean, I've, I've heard the term before of sort of just physiological breathlessness in pregnancy. Is that more or less just a, a diagnosis of exclusion once you've, you know, ruled out the worst possible things? It is and it isn't. Or I was. Or the other thing is, can we make a positive diagnosis of that? Yeah. Okay. So I, I like what you said about this physiological breathlessness of pregnancy and air hunger is what I call it. Okay. Because when you take the history, she's not short of breath climbing the stairs or carrying her shopping. She's actually breathless when she's talking on the phone. Does that make sense? So you've got to be sharp about taking it. So, and don't get me wrong. In my twenty-five years as a doctor, I have sometimes completed a chest x-ray, done an echo and a BMP before I've called it air hunger. And it's all about the history and examination. So if we think it's asthma, we know that it's going to be more short of breath at night. We know she could be wheezy. Okay. If it's air hunger, it's this idea Oh, my friends tell me that when I talk on the phone, I'm breathless. When you ask her and you challenge the patient and say, can you climb stairs? Can you walk across the bridge? There's no problems. So I think you can exclude it and you can make a diagnosis of it, but you also need to be open-minded enough to make sure you've excluded the red flags of breathlessness or thopnia um, palpitations and put that into context. Perfect. And just briefly mentioning some of the more some of the more basic investigations, which would more or less be the same for those of a non-pregnant patient. So things like an ECG are going to be the first line things, which uh, everyone when they come into hospital is going to have. And you're going to be looking for much the same things as you would for any other uh, patient you're suspecting a PE, uh, a PE for. Blood tests, again, in pregnancy, these might be uh, you know, more, you know, quite non-specific in the same way that blood tests in a PE are, are quite non-specific. You know, you, you may get sort of a mild raised inflammatory markers. If you're pregnant, you know, a normal variant is having raised white cells in pregnancy, which again can be non-specific. So I think the main thing is really is is thinking about imaging and thinking about making a positive diagnosis. I totally agree with you, Sam. Um, it is about the history and then it's about deciding what to do. Um, some hot tips I'd give you now when you're talking about bloods and that is you get a dilution anemia. So hemoglobin 100 is normal in pregnancy. You can get a gestational thrombocytopenia. So you've got to watch out for that. You can get a gestational neutrophilia so that actually they're, they're, their neutrophil count is slightly raised. And the creatinine drops in pregnancy, as you remember, because of that EGFR and that glomerular filtration rate. So a creatinine of 45 is normal in the first trimester about 55 in the second trimester, about 65 in the third trimester. And at the moment, you know, we say that a creatinine of 90 is actually abnormal. 
and you've got to put that into context. So, you know, there's so many things and, and you can pick up if you actually look at the values. And this is where I think the medical registrar has so much to give because you have a respiratory alkalosis that's compensated in pregnancy. So the pH is already a little bit higher at 7.44. So if you can look at bloods and stop calling everybody anemic or actually make a diagnosis, isn't that amazing? And I think when you have your PACES exam, you know, you, you are the best of the best at that time. Your knowledge is so good. And if you, we can just get this pregnancy approach right, wow, you know, we, we're, the, the world's going to change, isn't it? Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. One of the things I really wanted to ask you is, you mentioned about the treatment already being, um, sp- so split dose, low molecular weight heparin. This in some ways might be slightly different from how we treat a patient who isn't pregnant. And is the use of DOAX licensed in, in pregnant patients? Yeah, good question. Unfortunately, they're not. We haven't got any data. And at the moment, we, re- we would advise you not to use DOAX in pregnancy. I think if you conceived on a DOAX, we would have a conversation with them and we would not suggest to have um, a termination on the co- on just the reason of being on a DOAG. However, I don't think at this time we, we will be using DOAGs during pregnancy or postpartum if you're breastfeeding. Okay, perfect. And then the next question I had is, I mean, look, probably unlikely to come up in paces, but it's one of those things which if you're faced with it on the take, you're going to be in a real sticky spot. And I hope to hope to heaven that I don't find myself in this situation but if you have someone who is pregnant who's uh, had a massive life-threatening PE who is meeting criteria for thrombolysis you know they're shocked they're hemodynamically unstable I mean look I know that there are consultants to call all the time but um, one question which you'd be asking straight away is can you thrombolize people in pregnancy is this safe for the patient? Yeah, Sam, it's a really good question. And I hope if today we, if we can discuss this, we, we might save a life. So you can use thrombolysis, okay? It's completely safe. And actually, that's what you really want to do. Um, we use thrombolysis, you know, for not just for preambulism, for strokes as well. So for both of those contexts, it's necessary to thrombolyze them. So what I would say to you, Sam, is that I, I know you're a budding cardiologist. So, you know, if you're on the take and you've got a woman who is, um, compromised in any way and has got a known and recognized to have a pulmonary embolism okay then this is the time that you actually do use thrombolysis you may use actually um, catheter directed thrombolysis okay or you may use systemic thrombolysis it really depends on where you work and this is what's going to change and I hope in our lifetime this changes further in the sense that we're going to have networks to talk about who needs thrombolysis and have you got the right people so I'm at Lucky. I work at St. Thomas's. I've got access to um, um, catheter-directed thrombolysis. So I know the three that we've done recently, that's what we've used. However, if you're sitting in a busy A&E and you will have this woman in front of you, you know what? It is better when they are in a peri-arrest situation, you thrombolize them to, than to wait until, unfortunately, you have the cardiac arrest and try and bring someone back. What you must do, Sam, and what I want to reiterate now is if you've got a woman in front of you and you have a confirmed PE and she does arrest in front of you, do you do, do, do a perimortem C-section. However, however, if you've got them in front of you and you want to actually thrombolize them, thrombolize them, don't get the baby out before then. Okay. So two different things. If you've got someone compromised and you're sitting there and they're deteriorating rapidly, thrombolize them. 
if once they've unfortunately and sadly already arrested, then do the perimortem C-section within one round because that will help the mother. Well, there we are, listeners. That's the halfway point in our chat with Dr. Anita Banerjee. Like I said at the top of the show, we talked for over two hours. So the second half of the podcast will go out in a couple of weeks where we discuss hypertension in pregnancy, including preeclampsia, asthma, managing anti-epileptics. And lastly, Anita will be facing her Quiz the Consultant topic, which is the magical world of Harry Potter. And I can guarantee you really won't want to miss it. My last plea for this episode, as per usual, please like, follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review on whichever podcasting service you use. Get in touch on Twitter at Prepaces Podcast. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, if you want to go above and beyond and support what we do, head to our Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find in the show notes. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast.